Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues facing media marketing and advertising and have conversations with thought leaders and practitioners of the marketing world. Uh, Today, I'm at the Groucho Club in London uh, and I'm having a conversation with uh, Chris Arnold, who is, or Dr. Chris Arnold, sorry, Chris, who is the owner of Creative Orchestra and also an uh, author of the book, Ethical Marketing, The New Consumer. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, yeah. So ethical marketing, some people would uh, cynically say that that's a, uh, a oxymoron. Um, it seems a contradiction in terms, actually, but um, it's only when I first got into it, when I was creative director at Saatchi and Saatchi, we were actually looking at this idea of can we get brands to be more ethical? There was a lot of talk about environmentalism there. There was a lot of things to talk about exploitation of people. Um, but it was kind of early days. And we brought someone in, but it didn't really work. Brands weren't that interested. It's kind of full circle. Suddenly now, every brand is realizing it needs to be more ethical. It needs to have purpose at the core of its values. And you look at brands like Procter & Gamble and Unilever, where they're actually making it key to all their brands. Uh, those brands that have decided not to bother are inevitably going to suffer because all the research is showing that consumers are having a tendency towards brands that behave properly to respect the planet and respect people. And people are actually more important than, than the planet, actually. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because how long ago did the concept of the triple bottom line sort of rear its ugly head? That was, was this, that last century? Uh, no, no, it, it goes back to, I think it was economists who first came up back in the 70s, actually. But it's That long ago? Yeah. Well, definitely last century. It's uh, something that's been going around for quite a long time, and there's been many variations on it, the quadruple drop and uh, bottom line and other ways of looking at it. But actually, it's quite interesting because you look at the Western culture and you look at say for example by contrast in my book other cultures one i cite was islamic culture islamic culture has that inherent in it it is about you know not just how much profit you make and but how you look after your workers and how you treat society and community around you if you look at quakers for example they've had a very strong values look at presbyterians you look at companies that started as quaker companies or ford which is presbyterian these companies built their businesses with strong religious faith beliefs as well cabris is a very good example and they respect no, the community. Cadbury, because uh, what, what their, their religious base was... They were Quaker, yeah. Quaker, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you know a lot of companies now are trying to get back to yeah. those values because yeah. somewhere along the line, we've lost sight of uh, what the purpose of business. Well, I, I think the problem is that someone put it, you know, our God is, is money. You know, and, ca- and if you look at the capitalist development of society, we have, you know, to make more money is good because... In many ways, money employs people, money goes into communities and society and companies make a lot of money, put a lot of money back. So there's nothing wrong with making profit. But the value set has changed to exploitation. And if you look at the driving of prices down in retail, for example, you get fast fashion, you get sweatshops, you get exploitation. And people are saying, well, that's not acceptable. The problem is, and here's the irony, is the very people telling you they want to buy more ethical fashion, then go off and buy from shops that are selling fast fashion. So it's, there's got to be a marrying more between what people say and what they do. Because in actual fact, you know, there was the rise of the concept of the corporation. There was a time in history, especially Western history, mm. where the corporation didn't actually exist. It was individuals who were yeah. running businesses. Yeah. And then along came this idea of being able to create an entity yeah. that people would own and then increasingly that was through shareholding. And then somewhere down the track, it became that the shareholders were supreme, the interests of the shareholders, and we forgot about the customers. There's a very interesting economist who talks about the different approaches. Um, I lost for a moment one of the 
economists who created the whole concept of of doing it differently. But you know that is the case. If you look at the corporation making money, I mean, there's a film called The Corporation. Go back to the Second World War, and you see IBM over in Nazi Germany giving more than machines, but actually file people into the gas chambers. You looked mm. at Coca-Cola going over there and actually creating Fanta because they didn't like Coke, so they created an orange drink. You know, Boss doing the clothing. Um, the corporation was so intent on money, its ethics were so kind of removed, it didn't care. The trouble is those have kind of continued on and the big corporations don't really have a lot of ethics. So what you're seeing now is a, a real interesting one, which is those companies that are genuinely embracing ethics and those who are just paying lip service to it. Do you think part of that was the fact that they removed humanity from the corporation. You know, there was, when the, the concept of the company or the corporation was something that was bestowed on a group of individuals, and in that uh, bestowing the right to own a company was that you would do good, you know, you would pay back to society. In fact, there was a, a <coughs> famous economist that said that, that, that it was part of um, uh, Adams. No, as, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the guy who was, there's a guy who's very much against the way he criticised the way that America had gone mm. in this kind of money-obsessed shareholder cut uh, anyway, sort of we, culture. We can look that up. Yeah. But, but it's interesting how, you know, the corporation was then almost given a legal yeah. uh, entity as if it was an individual itself and that the people that ran it were no longer responsible no, they as were, individuals. They were responsible for making money for the shareholders. That was their primary responsibility. You know, not caring about whether they trash society or communities or anything like that. It was that's not on the agenda, but that is changing dramatically now, and it's changing more through the consumer who's so empowered now they can turn around and go, no, we're not going to buy from you. We don't like your ethics. You know, you're not good. And you, I mean, a good example of a consumer back term was actually uh, Procter and Gamble was Sunny D, and mm -hmm. Sunny D was running around. It was a complete con. It was basically. Uh, coloured water with a lot of sugar in it. Six spoonfuls of sugar, a bit of carotene to give it colour and about 2% orange juice. And they sold it to parents as a healthy orange drink. It was a complete con. I, I did briefly work on, a, on a, an attempt to relaunch it. And um, the, the parents found out. When the parents found out, they, they turned against the company and the product just died a death. Mm. When they tried to relaunch it, I was at Sarchis at the time. Um, I said, I've listened to this person from P&G rattle on about how they're going to relaunch it. I said, why bother? Nobody likes it. It's a devil drink, you know. No mother is going to buy that for their kids. So why don't you just kill it off? Why don't you invent a drink that people want? That concept was alien to him. The idea of actually going out, asking people what they want and creating a product that met their values and their needs was something that wasn't in their culture. Now it probably is. Well, because it was driven by the factory out view of yeah. the world, which is we can manufacture this, we can make a good margin. Yeah, make, it that, and make a big margin, yeah. Except that it leaves the actual yeah. consumer out of the equation. So when you're in the search for profit, then the only thing that matters is how much profit you can make. And eventually you squeeze more and more. And that means people get squeezed, you know. So do you think, because a lot of people are saying it's the, this generation of millennials that are driving this desire or this demand for businesses to be more accountable. I mean, it's almost as That's if... That's a myth. Yeah, oh, I'd be interested because yeah. you hear it all the time yeah. that it's the millennials that want the uh, ethical and sustainable and environmental well, You look at the spend of the business. pound, it's actually the over 50, so the biggest... They're the most powerful influence in the spending. The spending power in ethics is above 50. Hmm. They're the people really driving the hardcore of the market. The millennials who are a lot less financially able than their parents and grandparents, they talk it, but they don't walk it. 
If you look at fast fashion, who's the biggest purchaser of fast fashion? And if you look at a lot of unethical things, people like drinks, who's buying all that? It's largely millennials. Mm. So they're quite a hypocritical lot. But the danger of millennials anyway, it's a generalization badge for an enormously complicated group of people. And that age group, say, just at the 25 to 35 age group, for example, um, are probably got the highest in smokers. So they might talk about health, but how come they're also the biggest smokers? Mm. Yeah, they're also the biggest drug takers. <laughs> they're also the biggest drinkers. So yeah, for all the talk, you know, the, the reality can be quite a conflict, you know. But however, they have been brought up in, in a world where they're more sympathetic, empathetic, and understanding of environmentalism, for example, of health and the rest. And you do see, by contrast, for example, the myth of veganism being, you know, it's better for the planet and uh, stuff, being picked up by kids as a novel sort of gimmick to follow for a while. So there is a certain degree of people wanting to do good things. Well, so we've seen uh, environmental protests or stop, you know, stop work to protest. And the media is focusing on the fact that there are lots and lots of young people out there protesting and pointing the finger at the sort of baby boomer generation that are supposedly in power politically um, and saying, well, you're destroying our future by not addressing issues like climate change and sustainability. Well, it's interesting because if you look at who the two people are most influential on, say, the climate change thing at the moment in terms of news story, you could say, well, is it Greta or is it David Attenborough? Mm. If you look at change, Greta's done pretty much not a lot. I mean, she's had some nice protests, but she hasn't made people change policy. David Attenborough has. His whole thing on, on plastics has forced big brands actually change. So if you want to measure up who's made most impact, David Attenborough, who is way in his 70s now, maybe even 80s. So the older generation has much more influence than in fact Greta has, who's kind of now being knocked down. Except Greta's polarising people because there's a huge (laughs) backlash. I mean, you know, we live in the world of social media where everyone has a right to be outraged at all the time. Clarkson told her to shut up and go back to school. (laughs) And that's right. You know, there's this huge group of very high-profile baby boomers yeah. that feel like the whole, you know, they're anti-Greta because she's a young person speaking out. And, and does that also mean that they're anti-addressing climate change? I, I think the problem is that when we did some research on this quite a while ago, we found that it's about responsibility. Who is responsible? When we looked at responsibility, we found out firstly that governments were seen as responsible first. They said, yeah, governments, that's what we pay them to do. That's what they should be doing. And they have been partly responsible for not doing enough. Then they said it's corporations. Or anything in some cases. (laughs) I mean, they were talking... Because remember I come from Australia where uh, we had a Prime Minister bring a lump of coal into Parliament and say that this is the future of Australian energy. Really? (laughs) Well, it wasn't... It was um, almost 30 years ago when Thatcher got up and said, you know, the oceans are warming, the, the atmosphere is getting more dangerous and we need to do something about it now. And nothing was done, absolutely nothing. And the corporations have carried on merrily, you know... You could say raping the planet, if you use the words that some of them use. It, until someone actually legislates and stops them doing it, they'll carry on doing it because it isn't their, their interest isn't to save the planet. Their interest is to make as much money out of it before it goes down. Mm. You know? um, the problem is that it is starting to have a consequences. And people talk about the atmosphere. It's actually the oceans, which is the real thing that people miss. It's the oceans warming, um, which is the, the real catastrophic event that's going to happen. Well, particularly if you live in the Pacific Ocean and you have a a low-level landmass that is uh, potentially even a 90-centimetre rise in the sea level is uh, is going to wipe out most of your uh, land, it would be a concern. (laughs) 
no, no more Barbies on the beach. Uh, yeah, I, I think the problem with the consumer is the consumer doesn't see itself as, as very responsible. What's been interesting with the plastics campaign is that the consumers are starting to take more responsibility through plastic by saying, okay, maybe I'll stop buying plastic, maybe I'll recycle it better. And it's quite interesting because over in Spain at the moment, there's fanatical about collecting bottle tops that can't mm. be recycled. I don't know what they're going to do with them, but they, they, they're getting quite obsessed. Well, they could make them into necklaces yeah. and things. Yeah. Maybe yeah. build houses out of them, which mm. is what they've been doing in Africa, where they've been taking plastic bottles, filling them with sand and building houses, which actually is quite a clever idea. Really. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of new ideas coming about. And of course, with all the stuff saying, let's get up plastic, and you know, there is the development of PET and stuff. But... Um, they're saying, well, actually, alternatives aren't actually much better one way or another. It's kind of swings around about. And I think the, the problem, point is we've got to a period where almost anything we do isn't necessarily any better than anything else. We've kind of gone too far down the road. And it is a bit of a challenge now because if we'd done something 30 years ago when Thatcher raised it, we wouldn't be where we are. Now we are. So what does the consumer do? The consumer's confused. And the consumer's very, very confused. But there's also a role of the media and and of the corporations in shaping the conversations around this. I mean, there is a lot of conflicting information. There's a lot, and there's a lot of uh, vested interest in making that confused. You know, because Absolutely. the whole um, climate change. How easy is it for people to go? Oh, it's a much bigger problem than me, so I won't do anything. I think that is the problem. People do see it as too big, so they say, well, hang on, you know, it's not my responsibility, I can't do much, but I do expect governments and corporates to do something first, and none of them are doing much. Mm. So they're not going to follow until they follow. And as been proven, if you want to make a change, there's only two ways to do it. One is legislation, or you've got to work out how to get the masses all to work together. And when they did some studies, for example, in recycling, they discovered the most influential way to get people to recycle was when they saw the neighbours recycling. It was back to the old principle of, you know, sheep behavior, you know, social norms. And they found out by making it a social norm to recycle, people were happy to do that, you know. So recently there was a, a round table of CEOs in America that came out. And, and when I say round table, it's something like 200 of the top CEOs have come out and said they're reprioritizing and that it's no longer about shareholder value. It's about the good of all stakeholders, yeah. including employees, customers, the lot, right? Um, and cynically, someone said to me, and immediately afterwards, they phoned all their investors and said, we're just joking, we'll look after you. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that it's, it's very easy. I mean, we have the term greenwash around or ethical wash. And yeah, the problem is when you look or back. Or woke washing. Yes, you look back a couple of years and you see that a lot of things people were saying a couple of years ago, it was just hogwash. You know, it really was. Uh, hot air to keep people happy at the time. I, there's an energy company a friend of mine was working on and said, oh, well, in the ads, we're going to say to everyone, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2020. And she said to the boss, is that true? So who gives a shit? By 2020, nobody remember we said it. Mm. You know, but it keeps the, the crowds quiet. And I think there's been a lot of that going on, a tremendous amount of spin. But if you go to the media, the media is kind of doing a kind of different kind of spin. It highlights things. So for example, it was all about, we should have more wind turbines, fantastic. The next thing was, oh, wind turbines are really bad because their carbon footprint will never be offset. You know, they swing from one to the other mm. because it makes sensational news. They like writing about Extinction Rebellion because it makes good news stories. But nobody's writing and saying, well, have they actually made any difference? You know, and in fact, they haven't really. They made very little difference. If you talk to WWF, you find they made hugely more difference than those that have, have made yet. So, you know, they're not focusing on the people who really are making the changes and helping things change. But, you know, even with a bunch of CEOs sitting around a table promising change, the reality is, will they make any significant change? 
So it is very easy to give lip service, isn't it? It's, that's the problem. It's too easy to give lip service. Sharp PR agencies are very good at making people look good. Coca-Cola is running an ad all about recycling. Probably a bit late in the day. But then what about all the other things they do? You know, like stealing groundwater off people in India and all the rest. You know, they're not saying anything about that. There's that case of um, Shell doing an advert saying, oh, we're using this, the excess CO2 to grow flowers. Yeah, 0.1%. Mm. You know, but it was a classic greenwashing ad giving the impression they were doing a lot and we're doing bugger all. And this is a problem. A lot of the companies now running campaigns and they're doing this, they're doing that. But actually on the bigger scale, it's not enough. So uh, Chris, are you saying that we're destined to uh, fry in our own uh, <laughs> uh, carbon and climate change induced hell? No, because as species go, we're the most agile and adaptable species on the planet. If everything else dies, we'll still be here long after the long after that. I thought it was the cockroaches. <laughs> Everyone said that they're the only ones that survive a nuclear blast. Them and our ants. Yeah. Um, I think that it's interesting, I listened to someone today talking about it, and they were talking about this, the warming of the oceans. And they were saying, that, you know, the oceans have traditionally been the stabiliser of the planet. Mm. And actually, for all the fear, the water underneath has only gone up 0.01 degree, which they said is not significant, but the surface water's going up. So it does have some consequences. It will change in time what, how the world does, but the world will adapt and it will change and it will alter. Like you know, when there's an ice age, people got coats and wellies and warm wellies, you know. Um, if it's too hot, <laughs> we'll just get more suntan lotion. Uh, human beings adapt, but it will have a catastrophic effect upon our capitalist lifestyle. Yeah. That's, what it's gonna, that's the bit that's really going to change. And someone very sarcastically said, when someone from Extinction Rebellion was saying, you know, we're going extinct. And someone said, so what's wrong with that? At least the rest of the species on the planet will live. <laughs> I think, in fact, a group of scientists have worked out how long it would be before uh, Mother Nature returns the planet to a pristine state. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. only a few thousand years, relatively small in uh, the yeah. millennial of uh, the Earth. Well, you look at how long the dinosaurs are on Earth, and we've not been on a fraction of that yet. You know, so we die out, the earth isn't going to weep. <laughs> but I think it's, I think the challenge is starting to come is big corporations looking and going, we might have a big problem. You know, if you look at, for example, the, the fact that as you go much more towards the equator in Africa, you're going to see hotter climates. So in about 25 years' time, half of Spain could be, for example, desert. Yeah. So being a, one of the biggest suppliers of agricultural products to us, especially in others of Europe, that's gone. Mm. That affects America. You know, their, their wheat fields and stuff all gone. Suddenly, where are you going to grow all that stuff and food? Mm. Uh, that would have an economic impact on big companies who make their money from that. So they're starting to think, well, where's it going to hurt? Well, we're already seeing uh, with the extreme weather events yeah. that are happening around the world oh, yeah. and whether they are, you know, most uh, scientists are pointing to climate change for the, the occurrence of these. Yeah. What do the Brits say? They go, fantastic, we're getting better summers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Well, except we're also getting more hurricanes, we're getting yeah. more fires, we're getting, you know... Well, that's because most of the uh, weather in the Atlantic has moved across and we're getting yeah. the tail end of it all now. So it's impacting on insurance. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, I mean, insurance companies are finding themselves, you know, paying out huge amounts of money for the devastation. So our insurance policies go up. You say there's a consequence of climate change. When it hits people in the pocket, then people start to get concerned. But they can't push that Atlantic weather back anymore. You know, it's shunted over, I think, about 150 miles. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're getting the tail. But, you know, environmentalism is obviously a hot debate. I mean, what's been very hot previous to that has been ethics of people mm. you know, and animal ethics. So, you know, animals have been a very big issue with animal husbandry. Well, animals were the first, uh, really the first point of pain, wasn't it? Because I remember, you know, the body shop 
was one of the first brands that I was aware of that made a big stand. In fact, was built on a purpose of not being tested on animals. Oh, absolutely. And, and what was that? That was the was that the seventies? That's gonna say, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she she built it on ethics, and she built it on several ones. One was about people as well, mm. about fair trade. You know, making sure that people were properly paid, that farmers were not exploited. You know, that the environment wasn't damaged in the uh, in doing these things. Um, plus, of course, obviously on animal, no animal testing. And then, of course, ironically, the company gets bought by L'Oreal, who probably then start using a product that's been animal tested. Mm. <laughs> Having reassured everybody they would never do that, they did it. That was quite interesting because the story was that L'Oreal is so siloed and the whole big company is so siloed that nobody really connected the dots. So mm. the guys at Body Shop who used the product hadn't realised they'd been tested on animals. So often um, as an example of positive purchase by a big corporation, a lot of people point to Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream brand, which was bought by Unilever. Yeah, right. And people will often say, well, they actually understood the value of that the brand that they were buying. And even within a big international corporation, they're managing to maintain a lot of the uh, the values and principles. Well, Do you agree? I think I agree when, when big companies take smaller companies and let them get on with it. When Innocence was finally purchased by Coca-Cola, they said, get on with your Innocence drinks and all that, that side of it. We're quite happy, but we're going to do the orange juice. We want you because we want the orange juice name. And Coca-Cola bought Innocent, having obviously been an early investor in it, um, which also stopped them going bankrupt. Um, But it actually bought it because it wanted the name for the orange juice because it was competing heavily with PepsiCo against Tropicana, which is the biggest selling orange juice. And that's an enormous market. Smoothie market is nothing compared to orange juice. Yeah. And so Coca-Cola had an agenda, but the benefit was to Innocent was they had financial stability because they'd nearly gone bust two or three times. They had investment. They had some heavy people in there who knew how to market. They had better connections on retail. So they could sell what they were doing and do it better. Mm. Meanwhile, Coke was off selling orange juice, where, you know, McDonald's investment in Pret-a-Manger is much the similar. You know, sometimes people say, well, they're getting into bed with the devil. But, yeah, you sometimes have to work with corporates. And the rub off on the other way around is quite often these companies' values can be then pulled over because people say, well, you know, that's made a difference. The one which we were involved with. Uh, and, and sorry, just to pick up on that point, because uh, McDonald's have introduced salads and all sorts yeah, of uh, things to, you know, change the profile the, of the. The equivalent of fair trade coffee. Yeah. Which are, now, we used to work for um, Tradecraft, which is an organization, a charity, started off initially bringing products back from Africa on return trips. So when planes went there, they brought products back and sold them, and they were very heavily involved with fair trade. And when I worked with them, we, it was a time when Starbucks was selling largely coffee, but not really anything fair trade. They got one fair trade product, and they were marketing it, one pack of fair trade beans, like every coffee in the shop was fair trade. Mm. And it was a very dirty bit of marketing. We went after them on that. I think that's called misleading and deceptive. Absolutely. So we went after them and it got back to the CEO back in Seattle. And uh, apparently the thing was, he said, well, why aren't we selling fair trade coffee? And there was a kind of mumbling, grumbling down the lines of people going, well, because um, we made lots more money doing it this way. And really what he suddenly realized is company that started with very good values had lost the plot because accountants and procurement people were just so focused on bucks, they didn't see value. So he said, no, we're going to sell fair trade. And as a consequence, Starbucks, because of that campaign we led, became the number one fair trade bar in the world. Mm. And a lot of people's lives have been bettered by that. So you're saying it is possible to bring about change. Oh, yeah. And big companies can do it. I was talking to a guy at Pepsi. And he was saying, you know, we only have to to reduce 
our plastic by 1% in a bottle and we'll make more difference to plastic recycling than anybody in the world mm. because we sell a billion bottles a day. Yeah. yeah. So if we do Just the sheer things, scale of yeah. it. And this is the big thing about the plastics in the ocean is that when you look at the brands that you're pulling out, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Kraft, um, and all the rest, you know, you've got to be saying, well, okay, there's a big issue with you produce these products. Why are you guys not getting together and solving the problem at the root? I think the problem you see a lot with environmentalism is we don't solve the problem at the root. We scream and shout about the end results. We, mm-hmm. we, we want another plaster. And if you look at the plastic in the ocean, which comes from about seven key rivers, none of which are the River Thames. You know, so it's all very nice that people in Soho are not using plastic straws, but it's making effort difference. Mm. What happens is if those companies got together and actually backed recycling and even refuge collection schemes in places like China and India and, and South America, that stuff wouldn't end up in the river in the first place. Mm. And this is a fundamental problem. People don't address the core problem. They always shout about the noise at the end. You know, so, and I think consumers are starting to see that, but it, that often requires the big corporates and governments to work together. And yet, and, and you mentioned earlier that governments have not taken the action, either legislative or tax, because yeah. tax is the other big lever. Yeah, you know, a carbon a tax would have make a huge difference to all. Ten percent increase reduces four percent consumption. Yeah. So, but uh, even on legislation, I mean, to actually introduce a responsibility across the supply chain, so that you actually legislate that everything you manufacture you have to be responsible for it right through its lifetime to the rec- reclaiming it at the other end. Well, that's starting would to make f- a huge difference. That is it? starting to happen because the technology now that is, uh, takes tracks everything through because the, the food companies have had to track stuff because of legal requirements on you know, contamination and stuff. Mm. And this very much came out in the horse burger incident, you know, that they were able oh, yes. to track stuff through. But now all the big companies are actually you know, tracking all the way through their supply chain, so they can be accountable. And IBM's got a fantastic system that means that you can literally see what seeds crop it came from and was planted in what field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I happen to know an olive oil company that claims that if you scan the bottle or number in, it shows you which olive grove the olives came from, but we discovered it was complete fraud. <laughs> it just completely made it up and they were just made a lot of random videos and then it sort of randomly the numbers go and they claim it and it's, it was a complete lie. Right. You know? um, but it's, you know, accountability is a key thing. And when you kind of using now technology to create better accountability, then you get greater responsibility. It's very hard, you know, if you look at what happened with the, the collapse of the sweatshop in Bangladesh. Yeah. Of course, when they started pulling it out, they started pulling all the labels out. And of course, those labels had some pretty shocking names, you know, well, some, some very brands. big names. Some very big names, some very big brands. Um, some that we're less familiar with, for example, European brands. Um, and they were all sitting there going, oh, no, they were making fake products for us. You know, they, they, were, they weren't making for us. They were sure. making fake. They were, just, they were fake labels. You know, they were, they were part of a fake. And everyone's going, bullshit. <laughs> you know, we know you were really. And what sometimes happens is the brands don't really know because they're buying into the front, you know, the nice looking sweatshop. It isn't a sweatshop, you know, where people are treated nicely. What they don't know is that same guy is running the darker ones over there. Mm. Yeah, and this is a problem. And, you, and when you look at exploitation, especially fair trade, and say bananas is a good example, you find the worst exploiters are their very own people. You know, the very worst What, what do you mean? Well, if you look at the banana problems they had in South Africa, South America, the people who were exploiting the people, killing the union leaders, were actually the very own people themselves. Right. within the community itself. So it wasn't foreign companies coming in. Foreign companies just buying bananas. In many cases, they had no idea what was really going on. 
And do you think part of that is because of the desperation or just greed? It's greed a lot of the time. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, economics positive negatively is without doubt absolutely the cornerstone of everything when it comes to environmentalism, for example, and, and ethics. And it's not something that's often talked about. If you look at the economics of, say, what's happening with the rainforest, why are people chopping down the rainforest? Well, your vegetarians will tell you because of chopping it down to feed McDonald's. Yeah, to have cows yeah. to have And they go, well, actually, yes, they are chopping down and they're growing soya, which incidentally, by the way, is now more going towards vegetarians who mm. drink soy milk because, vegans, because they get a bigger price for it than they do for animal feed. Mm. So actually, you guys should maybe be a bit quieter. However, you say, well, why are they growing soya? Well, because they make a lot of money on it and they can't grow heroin. Mm. If they could grow heroin, they'd do that instead because that makes even more money. If they could make more money out of turnips, they'd grow turnips. The problem is economics. These people are poor. They need to grow to survive and earn money. Yeah. It's not like chopping the things down to feed hamburger cows. They're chopping them down just to live. Yeah, because uh, you know, in uh, Indonesia there was the whole issue, and Nestle got caught up in this. The palm oil. Oh, palm oil. Yeah, yeah where they were destroying um, planting palm oil. Yeah, yeah destroying that uh, rainforest. But see, palm oil. And, and and the interesting thing was the appeal was the orangutan. Because, yeah. you know, the orangutans were losing their habitat yeah. so that we could have palm oil in our food. And Kit Kat was cited very heavily. Mm. On that one. The, the other thing about palm oil, and it's a good example, you know, people say, oh, we want palm oil free. And Iceland went for this thing and saying, you know, no palm oil in any of their products. Very clever on that. They said their products, yeah. implying any products. They just kept them there low. However, that's a generalisation because there are good palm oils and bad palm oils. Mm. And some palm oils are fine. That's okay. And other products are not. You know, very bad. Well, it depends where they're sourced and yeah, how they're grown. what kind they are. I mean, I feel sorry for a company called Palm Olive, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because it's really hard to, you know, get away from what you built your business on. But, you know, and you see these trends in consumers suddenly, I don't want this, I don't want that, I want that. But what happens here, very interestingly, is they sort of have this surge of suddenly, I, you know, gluten-free or we're going to go buy vegan products and all that. And then suddenly, you know, a year later, we'll sort of bounce back again to where they were because... Consumers like that, they go back to what they're comfortable with. So, Chris, what do you think about the idea of you know, values being almost colonialised? And what I mean by that is when in the West where we have a high standard of living, we have uh, high economies, and then we try and apply those values to uh, emerging and, and, and third, you know, what were called third world countries. You know, do you think that's legitimate? Is there one set of values for the world? Or do we have to recognise that circumstances, their economies, their standard of living means that often values get compromised? I think there's a big danger in the Americanization of standards, for example. America has this attitude that it wants to impose its values on everyone in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think as Brits, we wouldn't really want to see a lot of their values because we're not very comfortable with them. However, I think if you look... Well, you don't want to carry a gun? No. Oh, right, okay. Fine. <laughs> um, no, it must just be me. I mean, for me, I, I don't see the Americans as particularly a great, um, you know, poster boy for values. And certainly not Trump. I mean, also, there are many other aspects of what they do which, again, threaten our environment. You know, the potential of the Middle East war stimulated by Trump will have a devastating effect upon all our lives and will have a dramatic consequence on some millions of people who live quite innocently mm -hmm. in the Middle East. But if you look at values and you go globally, I mean, there's many different cultures and different attitudes and different ways people are brought up. But if you look at, say, religions, for example, most of them have core values. They mm -hmm. respect for each other. Most of them do respect 
you know, to, you know to, to not to kill other people, not to torture them, even though in the name of religion, a lot of people have died. Um, but there are core values that are fairly common across the planet. I think those values are something that are important. The thing is, we, uh, and, and humanistic values. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we do apply more so in the UK than anywhere values to animals. You go mm. to Spain, they don't get it. You know, showing, talking they, about orangutans wouldn't bother the Spanish because yeah, and, they're not and, animal lovers. Well, the, the people that bought us bullfighting. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> Banned it and then brought it back. And then yeah. there are people where the animal lives outside, never inside. They never. They haven't humanized animals in in Spain because they're a very farming community, as we have here. We've mm. done it more than anybody in the world is to humanize animals, along with Americans. So we get very upset about animals. You go to a lot of countries, and it's kind of like, so what? You go to certain parts of Asia where they eat dogs. You know, talking about orangutan losing would be like, oh, okay, so what? Mm. So, but I think there are common values that need to, to be adopted. Unfortunately, mankind has shown that through either war or commercial gain, that human beings get pretty, treated pretty low in the pecking order. It was a complete eye-opener for me. I don't know if you remember, but Apple got, Apple computers got caught up with, uh, there was a report that Foxconn, which is the Taiwanese company that makes most of their phones, have a huge factory in Shenzhen, in mainland China. And someone reported one of the um, uh, international sort of human rights groups about the high number of suicides happening amongst the workforce. Uh, and there was a global outrage, this is terrible, Apple who supposedly are uh, responsible sourcing people. From the Chinese perspective, which was never reported in the West, the actual, for the number of employees, the actual suicide rate was relatively low compared to the general population. Yeah. And the people were committing suicide at work because their families would get paid. Yeah. So they would commit suicide at work, which is why the numbers were so, looked high, but it was actually quite low. And so it seemed to me that we can easily fall into the yeah. trap of having a lens on other nations that is actually unfair. Well, a good example of this is kids saying footballs. Oh, outrage, outrage. 12-year-old kids saying a football, exploitation of football. Well, that's an instant applying of Western values. Mm. Bearing in mind their education often stops in many African countries about 12. Mm. Many kids do go out to work to feed the families, look after the families from 12 years old, and that's, that's normal practice. The Being able to sew a Nike football, it seemed like going to Cambridge for a lot of kids. Mm. That was like, wow. And they were paid quite well. Yeah. So, you know, actually what happened is when they the sort of liberal lot came in and protested and they started boycotts against Nike and all that. What happened was, of course, they had no choice but to say nobody under 18. Yeah. The outcome was the kids were left with no employment. So what did they end up in? Drug dealing and prostitution. Yeah. So what they did is that, that liberal sort of lefty sort of human rights-y lot who don't get their facts right had actually condemned a whole generation of kids to far worse. And they just walked away and left it. That's what really, they didn't take responsibility for their actions. It is complex, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah um, Charlie Wilson's War, the um, film written by Aaron Sorkin, shows that if America had have invested in Afghanistan after driving the Russians out, then a lot of the modern issues that we have with Middle East and, uh, and, yeah, and Islamic terrorism would not perhaps have occurred. So there's this whole interconnectedness. Yeah. This, the same argument is about the, the rainforest. If America would invest money in South America, which it won't do, mm. then there wouldn't be the rainforest problem. We could create other industries. And the same said, you know, look what happened in the Second World War. It was the British who said the way to stop America, Germany going to war again is to invest in it. So we invested a fortune 
and building a car industry, Volkswagen, yeah. and many other industries. And that way we made, you know, actually Germany is prosperous because of what we invested in in the Second World War. So Chris, yeah, just to paraphrase this whole conversation, which has been terrific, by the way, um, governments have not been doing what they're meant to do. Corporations are sort of feeling the pressure, so reluctantly feeling the pressure. Uh, Huge numbers of uh, consumers of all ages, not just millennials, but, you know, baby boomers and the lot, are all feeling like that they should be doing more, but largely on an individual level, that is largely pointless anyway. It (laughs) seems to me that the only solution from this conversation is that people should become more politically motivated to actually force government to bring about the changes, the legislative and tax changes, to force business to actually make the mass scale changes you used as the Pepsi example. Yeah, we actually need a bit of a paradigm shift really in sets of values. I mean, the problem a lot of it comes down to is money, really. You know, governments don't like surrendering. For example, the reason governments don't like banning cigarettes completely because they still make money out of it. You know. <laughs> There's That's a terrific that. yes uh, minister where yeah. the uh, free points out that the tax is greater than the health costs. So right, in yeah. actual fact, uh, Britons are dying for the good of the British economy. <laughs> and in fact, an American tobacco executive actually pitched this to one of the Eastern Bloc countries who wanted to ban cigarettes completely, actually pointed out that the, the money they earned from the tax was six times more than the payout. Plus, and here's the really controversial way they hit the press. You have to remember that he said, you know, these people will die early, so you won't have the burden of them in old age. Mm. You know, which is quite shocking, really. But, you know, there is good to be had and there is good things happening. And we are seeing that, for example, brands have adopted a more ethical stance tend to do very well. I mean, look at Procter & Gamble, Unilever, some of the most profitable brands are the more ethically minded since they've become ethically minded. Some of the startup brands that have built themselves on ethics have been kicking the asses of the big companies. Mm. So there is a tendency towards that and it's a slow movement. But companies need to do more and that will probably require legislation and other factors. Uh, and even shareholders saying it's not you know, what you make is how you make it, which matters. And governments need to pull their fingers out and start doing things. And some governments are doing things, but, you know, you take, just take, for example, cigarettes, for example, which is something you think is old news. Only, I think it's 40-odd countries have banned cigarette advertising altogether. Yet 181 are signed up to the World Health Authority organization. Yet less than 20% of all the countries in the world, I think it is, have actually banned cigarettes completely in terms of marketing. It still goes on freely in other countries. So it's you know, a long way to go. And if they're not doing that on cigarettes, what well, hope have you got the rest? Mm. You know, so we've got a long, long way to go. The question is, have we gone too far? Some would have us believe. Um, or will we just accept the fact that we've gone so far now, we're just gonna, we're gonna have to adapt our world. And will it be the world that forces us to change the whole way we look at economics? Mm. You know? And I think economics is where I'd look more now than anywhere else to see how economics, because economics, forces change more than almost anything else in history. So, uh, Chris, we've run out of time, but you, if people want to read more about this, Ethical Marketing, the New Consumer is... Uh, it's on Amazon. Amazon and published by Wiley. Wiley, yeah, okay. it's on that. But you've also got a new book coming out called Flip, Unthink Everything You Know. Absolutely, yes. And that's probably... It's a book that started originally about creativity, but we realised we were talking much more about how you think, and in today's world, thinking differently is critical. So we've it's got a lot of new thinking in there, a lot of existing ideas on thinking, and it's quite a radical way of looking at things. 
Well, we'll have to do another podcast yeah. when that uh, <laughs> comes out to the market because I think that's a fascinating topic. Hey, just to uh, to, to finish this up, is uh, we now live in what uh, many people call a post-truth world. <laughs> What's the impact do you think that has on bringing about change? Thank you.